Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Mike Berg and I'm here with Peter Hermanson, uh, one of the founders of this podcast, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not taking responsibility <laughs> for that. been around in a while. <laughs> um, this is Mother's Day and we have two wonderful mothers at home who allowed us to come and do this. <laughs> um, so uh, Wade is not here and Ben is not here. We're not even sure if Ben's alive anymore, but that's all right. And uh, we thought we would uh, record on this snowy day, actually. I had snow down by yeah, the Yeah, we had snow there too. Uh, this uh, May 10th in Wisconsin. And uh, an, there's an article uh, published by the New York Times. It's called Christianity Gets Weird. And it's sort of about a... She's Anglican, or at least at least as, attends an Anglican church, yeah. And she's talking about Tara... Burton is talking um, about sort of kind of a small little renewal of, let's just say, um, the historic Christian liturgy, something, something. Yeah, I think you got to write it pretty, pretty broadly from what she's saying. And uh, especially in the context of this uh, pandemic, um, where we kind of look at the modern world and we go, hmm, maybe we haven't fixed everything, right? And uh, I thought it was interesting because I think there's broader things to think about here when it comes to modernity, that, that unlimited promise of progress um, and everything that is new is cool and everything that is old is, is probably suspect and bad as if we were still fighting the battles of the enlightenment and the dark ages kind of thing. And, and yet I, it's interesting to me because being interested in liturgics and the historic liturgy and, and even teaching it here, on campus for the last couple decades, I think there has been younger people who have been attracted to what previous generations said dismissed without even thinking about it. That's old, that's old fashioned, that's dumb. That's not going to attract people, especially the young people. And there are at least some young people who are like, hold on, wait a minute a little bit. And I think the art that is the historic liturgy, think about the music, think about the forms, the rites, and the art that comes with Christianity, I think kind of follows that cultural back and forth a little bit. And so I thought it was interesting, and Peter agreed to come on and talk about that uh, today. So without any further ado, though, we have to go to our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers, to be honest. Much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy bit of skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live freely, friends, and don't let us get in the way. back for a free-for-all. A free-for-all today is going to be, we went, we have a long list, and uh, after a few chuckles, we have decided on what would be the most romantic means of transportation. So the m- most romantic means of transportation, you got something in your mind? Yeah, it seems know? fitting on uh, on Mother's Day, I'm thinking about yes. romantic transportation, right? So um, there's a few that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you should go first, because I know what you want, and I don't want to steal it. But. Now, we've had this on our list uh, probably for over a year 
And every time I read it out, I say, but I get Vespa. (laughs) (laughs) So if you imagine this little, you know, it's not really, it's a somewhere between it. It's a high powered scooter, let's say. (laughs) And, uh, I can just a picture, uh, you know, a woman on the back of a Vespa hugging onto her man going through the, uh, busy and dangerous streets of Rome. Right. (laughs) So the Vespa's everybody, everybody wants to do gondola, but somebody else is there, you know, and probably a tall, skinny, fairly muscular man with an Italian accent. Well, what if you're the one, the gon, the gondolier? Is that yeah, the term? What if you're the gondolier? Maybe, but that's your job, you know? And, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. So, Do you and, think the gondolier's wife gets to go out on the gondola very often? I think she probably doesn't want to do it at all. She probably fell in love with the gondolier and then after a while said, this is dumb, I don't want to do this anymore. Or do you think it's like the fireman's house burning down where the gondolier is like, I'm not going to do this, this is work. This is like, work, that and could then be. She maybe is like pining to go out on the gondola. That could be. That also could be. I was gonna say that I was gonna say the gondola. Do you think firemen actually <laughs> don't would not go to the call in their own house? No, no. I'm saying like it's the the, the irony of their <laughs> house burning down. Right. The irony of the gondolier's wife sure. not being able to go on the gondola. Sure, sure. Um, I was actually going to say I would I would say the gondola, except that Amy hates boats. She just hates really? being on water. Yeah. Um, she actually probably be okay with the gondola because it's not motor powered. But like she'll do like a canoe. But yeah, otherwise she's not. And then I thought. The Vespa was great, but then I thought Amy hates motorcycles or anything like that. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's the work. And then it dawned on me, it really depends on the person that you're being romantic with, right? Oh, jeez. Right? You can't just you can't just like make this you know sure. blanket statement. In fact, some might say riding on horseback, right? Yeah. But I'm okay. allergic to horses. That'd be terrible. That wouldn't be romantic. I, I think it's romantic from afar, but I think if you're <laughs> on the horse, you know, like. Being jostled around, probably not. If you're in the get a, a horse-drawn carriage and you know in Central Park, and unless it has um, has been eating beans, yeah. If you well, remember that episode of I, <laughs> of Seinfeld. <laughs> yep. No, and it would be even even being dragged behind a horse would be just terrible for me. So I would be like sneezing all over. Mm-hmm. You know, my well, in this case, Amy, I would mm-hmm. assume be the person. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so that would be terrible. So I'm thinking maybe like a you know like a Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> something practical not too practical, expensive you have saved you know, money for the if it's future. a focus it can't fit kids in it that's definitely that's romantic in fact that might be my answer the smaller the car the better maybe we need like one of those smart cars there's only two people yeah that way no one else can get in but it's still a car yeah. i'm going with that yeah that's my and most I, w- romantic I would also say very manly too yeah. <laughs> um so i the gondola i think is out even though everybody would go there um you know, a cruise ship, not in this, these times, Yeah. you know, <laughs> horseback. I think, you know, that's, that's, that seems romantic, but probably smelly and probably not. I still like my Vespa idea, but how about like a, I don't know, a 1955 Chevy. Yeah. With a, the front seat is just, just the, the, the bench. bench seat. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably, yeah, that's, that's good. I think may, maybe my number two. Yeah. I think Amy might say too many kids can fit in here. That's true. Um, Wade Wade would probably go with a beat up old uh, Ford F one fifty. Yeah, yeah, which is probably not at all. Yeah, Um, he would not find someone to agree with him. Yeah, none of us are going to go with the minivan, I would imagine. (laughs) So, uh, pickup trucks maybe maybe as a little cachet, like an older one, maybe. Yeah. If you if you have a country girl, some chrome on it, and yeah, yeah. 
Like a like a forties Ford kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd be all right. Yeah, I could Okay. I could manage that. So <laughs> Ford Focus is your answer, final <laughs> answer. Ford Focus. <laughs> I'm still going with a Vespa and then uh, like a, you know, mid fifties. It could be anything, it could be a Chevrolet, a Pontiac or whatever. But you know, notice, notice what we neither of us did. We didn't overcompensate with like a Corvette or a sports car yeah, or a well, Lamborghini. I wouldn't. Amy would just be like, no, nah, I'm not interested. Yeah. So it wouldn't be very romantic. It would not be very I'd be romantic. by myself. So, all right. Um, I'm going to ask Amy about the, <laughs> about the Ford <laughs> could you, Focus. Could you get Amanda on a Vespa? Is this, is this a possibility? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I had a motorcycle yeah. for a while and I never got Amy on it. It didn't run very well, though. But um, maybe that was part of it. We were just talking about this for like... 10 minutes of my life. I think it was when I turned 30. I had the, not the midlife crisis at 40, but at 30, I mm-hmm. looked around and I'm like, I don't have any money and haven't accomplished anything in my life. <laughs> and, uh, thought about getting a motorcycle for about 10 minutes, but then I'm like, no, that's not me. Yeah. I see. I got one. It was, I, I've, I always had wanted one. And so I don't know. It was necessarily a midlife crisis or anything, mm-hmm. but it was, I pitched it to Amy. I was like, listen, we only had one car at the time. Mm-hmm. I was like, we need two forms mm-hmm. of transportation. So I got this used motorcycle that never actually got me to school. It was, I could only <laughs> ride it around town because it was, it had a problem with the clutch. And so yeah. I never could take it out on the, on the highway. You sold it. I had to, yeah. When we moved up to Wisconsin, I sold it. Um, you should have kept it for Gabe. I should have. Yeah. It was like, I liked riding it. It was fun. Yeah. I, I can I get the appeal of it. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, bugs in your face and <laughs> stuff like that. So all right. I think we've uh we've done very well with that topic. Uh I think we nailed it. If you uh Vespa or a Ford Focus. Yeah. If you if you have any thoughts, listeners, please let us know and we'll we'll put those on the air, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. Pod, podcast at letthebirdfly.com. Or wait you and Wade just never say this, but you can find us at letthebirdfly.com. So I mean that's our website and we have a Facebook page a Twitter account that just kind of retweets our posts and that kind of stuff. So, you know, contact us there. Let us know how you're doing. We should say we're on the 1517 podcast network. Good good call. We did not and, introduce uh, that. And putting out good books um, and blogs. And they have this. Blogs. Blog. How do you spell that? Blogs. blogs. Um, and then they have this these kind of, uh, I think they call them table talk, like round tables that they did in San Diego in, in, uh, in the fall. And they've been putting them out so like four or five people wade was on one for christian freedom our friend valerie locklear was on yep. one for apologetics so uh i have actually She's a guest of ours way yeah, back yeah um i i've seen them i have not listened to all of them i, I should but uh so check it out check out 1517 1517.org podcast list 1517.org slash podcasts all right we'll be back with our main topic Break. Uh, Peter and I both called our wives to see what 
they thought about our free-for-all, the most romantic means of transportation. And Just in a general sense, I'd say we did we did pretty well. Yeah, we did. They were I, happy with it. Although our... I heard the, the one-sided uh, conversation that Peter had with Amy, and he was trying to explain to her why the Ford Focus would be romantic. I don't think she bought it, though. Well, you didn't hear the other side. She was saying <laughs> things like, no, that's a baseline that doesn't need to be protected. Like, th- things along those lines. All, of- all I remember you saying was, so not the Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll go. I'll go with mine, and then you can go with Amy. Uh, my wife Amanda said, "Of course, I don't know." You know, she was being she was being polite, but like, you know, with the tone of like, "You're an idiot. Why are you talking about this?" You know, and but she played along, and she said, well, "Horseback riding," and then she um, said, "Walking." I said, "Well, okay." She said it's airplane. technically a means yeah. of transportation. She said airplane, then she backed off on that, maybe like in the 50s or whatever. Then she said she went with train, like oh. a European train. So she, I think she, that was pretty good. Like a New York subway? Not a subway. She said oh, specifically okay. a train in Europe. Okay. So not like That's a, good. and not an Italian train, like <laughs> a French, English or German, I, Swiss train. I will, I will fill that in too for her, so. So, yeah, Amy wasn't thrilled with the Ford Focus idea. Mm -hmm. She felt like I was just giving up too much when I was just focusing on not having kids around. Um, She said, as I kind of guessed, she said, the gondola would be okay because there's no wake. I I couldn't remember exactly what it was. It's not a motor. There can't be wake. And so she said, yeah, that would be fine. I did it. I came back to the gondola or to the Ford Focus. Mm -hmm. Um, And she just, yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't. Wasn't into she it. She didn't go for it. No. I, you know, I think practic- I think maybe practicality she just needs- is attra- uh, being attractive in a man, <laughs> but whatever. Well, I guess, I guess you know, times are changing. Yeah. All right. Oh, so you made me think, though. The other thing we, I didn't even think about was what about like snowshoeing or cross-country skiing? Oh, yeah. Right? Skiing. I mean, it could be. Could I would be. like those. I'm still betting on Vespa. <laughs> that was a good one. All right. Um, to our main topic. Christianity gets weird. So I sent you this uh, article, and uh, you dutifully read it. I didn't think you were going to, but you did. It wasn't too long. No, it wasn't. What did you think? It was, it, was, it was interesting. It was actually something I've been thinking about recently in the light. And the, this article is from New York Times on, um, did it come out today or a couple of days ago, I guess, right? Yeah, it looks like May 8th, 2020, at least that's what the URL says, um, by Tara Isabella Burton. And... Uh, I've been thinking about it recently in the context of all this online church stuff that we got going on, people Mm -hmm. recording their services, streaming their services, and that being a window into all of these different types of churches. And a lot, Mm -hmm. of course, a lot of churches are not doing, they're not having their services like they normally would. Some are trying to, and you know, you have a lot of variety in that regard as well. But it made me wonder specifically about my church, my um, home parish and it's very liturgical and uh, follows a you know very set liturgy every Sunday, so it's you know very familiar to to me and to those of us who gather there. So when we put our services up on the internet on YouTube, the members are going to see something that they're very familiar with. But a lot of people that I know and even in our circles are not used to that sort of a, at least not that rigidly of a liturgical mm-hmm. service. And so I've been thinking, what is this, how would, how is this, how would this be received by others? So we've kind of been having that thought already going yeah. through my mind. And she mentions people like 
tuning in to various church services, like mm -hmm. more more than just one, and and finding like a Latin mass, right? And so, if you're not familiar, what we call about the Latin mass, um, <clears throat> so in the early '60s, there was a po uh, there was a um, a big uh, council in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, that was held at the Vatican. So this was the Second Vatican Council, and they did a, instituted quite a few, quite a few things, including some liturgical renewal type things. And so, uh, in, in the liturgical world, uh, we talk about this as post-Vatican stuff, and and pre-Vatican would have been either called the Latin Mass, so it's in Latin or the Tridentine Mass, which would come from the Council of Trent, which is uh, 15, 16, 1500s, late 1500s. And the, that, that, uh, that council in Trent uh, comes after the Reformation, right at the tail end of the Reformation. And, and there were some uh, updates that were done there in, in the church life in general, but it was very much a doubling down of uh, a lot of medieval theology over against uh, the the, pro the greater Protestant world. And <clears throat> before that, there was a lot of variety, quote-unquote variety, in, in worship. Um, but with the Council of Trent, they really kind of made some rigid rules, right? And remarkably, from that period until like the 1960s, there was not a whole lot of movement. Uh, and it didn't matter where you, what culture you were from, this were the very it was the very same structure the very same words which can be very comforting but it was the very same language in latin right, right? i was going to say it was not 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 just rigid i mean like extremely in that crossing cultural boundaries because they were just using latin yeah. and that becomes a problem especially in the 20th century absolutely <clears throat> but the post vatican uh world um it's that's the 1960s right and so there is um, uh, a lot of updating and, and a lot of places maybe not always very thoughtful or maybe went too far or went too fast, however you want to describe that. Uh, some good things, the vernacular in certain circumstances, the laity could have a communion in both kinds. A uh, big one that you see is uh, uh, the altar is brought out and used as a table. So if you go to an old church built before the 1960s, they'll have an altar way up there that's usually grand and beautiful. And then they'll have another altar, which is a table that was mandated. Uh, and so there's, there's at least two altars in these churches besides the, the side altars. Um, but then that Vatican two, let, let me go back. Vatican one, uh, was how to deal with modernity, rise of science, rationalism, that kind of stuff. And in a lot of ways, Vatican one, uh, did some things like Trent did, like let's double down on this is the line in the sand. There were some updates, but basically this is our line in the sand. And then um, a couple generations later in Vatican II kind of opened things up. Well, when you open things up at that period, you're in late modernity or late capitalism or however you want to talk about it, uh, moving into a whatever comes after modernity, which we kind of loosely call postmodernism. And when you do that, you, you, you're going to leave some stuff behind and there is a desire for that. And I think, uh, this article is one of many examples of people saying, I kind of like the Latin mass a little bit, maybe not for the right reasons, but there's something there that in this post-capitalist or 
late capitalism or however you want to talk about it, the sense that in the modern world, we haven't really fixed all of our problems. And we just kind of, we just took the spiritual out of our life. We took the, the mystery out of our life. Um, and we turned the church into something that uh, is to be consumed. There are clients or consumers or customers, and we're selling something. And that, that plasticness, that, that being sold something, that, that giving you whatever you want instead of coming into the presence of God and, and being awed by his majesty, when you take that out, then there is go- the pendulum is going to swing the other way. And I think you see that too, and that can be dangerous too, where you can have people who are, let's call them liturgical Nazis, who you know couldn't preach a sermon of comfort to save their lives, but they know all the details of all these very obscure kind of liturgical movements and actions and rites rubrics. and rubrics and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I think this is and this is only one example of trying to figure that out. Now that we've pulled that pendulum all the way to the end of modernity, taking the modern world to its inevitable conclusion and it comes swinging back um, it gets played out in our culture and specifically in this cultural artifact of the Christian worship yeah and so going specifically to uh, Ms. Burton's article here she's talking about it in the context she's in it sounds like an Anglican or at least that's the church she goes to Um, she refers to it as weird Christianity Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, this movement is is if I understand it correctly, and I, I mean, outside of this article, I don't know anything about the specific movement that she's calling weird Christianity, although the general kind of zeitgeist, Mike and I were talking about it before recording here, and we both, you know, are very aware of this movement and, you know, in some ways ourselves participate in that, obviously. But she calls this weird Christianity, and it definitely reaches across different denominations, but you would think kind of the, the more liturgical ones historically, so the Anglicans, Episcopalians, the Catholics, the Orthodox, um, certain areas of Lutheranism, going to leave out some of the uh, more Protestanty Protestants um, for kind of obvious reasons, at least in America, because um, the liturgy was, was left behind pretty early. But she talks about how you're, what, what she's, I, if I understand correctly, what she's is arguing that this movement comes from is this drive back to find some sort of, you know, she uses the word authenticity or real realness. And um, her subtitle is modern life is ugly, brutal and and barren. Maybe you should try a Latin mass. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, Hey, we're going through all of these changes in the modern, in our modern world and society. And we have these cultural wars going on and we're still feeling kind of empty. And maybe more and more empty, I think, if I read between the lines a little bit, is what she's saying. And so how do we, how do we, fi- how do we feel fulfilled? How do we find that? And maybe there's something that, um, that our spiritual ancestors had that can help us in that regard. Now, the question I always get to with this is, is it, are we just talking about a form, someone that it's just traditionalism? Mm-hmm. And this, the movement she's talking about, it's not just traditionalism. Yeah. Yeah. I would say on the, um, in the more conservative American uh, theological realm, when I say that, like the politically conservative, that it might be more just the latching onto the conservativeness of mm-hmm. it. Um, but that does not seem to be the case here, um, ra- but rather 
hey, there's something mystical, or she uses the word a number of times, aesthetic, right? Yeah. The aesthetic is really yeah. important. Yeah, and, and I think coming out of, let's say, a plastic world of 50s, 60s, 80s, maybe even into the 90s, um, that authenticity was a, uh, was, was a phrase bandied about by a lot of cultural uh, renovators and, and philosophers. And, and, and it did creep a little bit into the greater Protestant world. I remember there's a movement called ancient modern worship. So, you know, right at the, the height of, okay, when I go into a church, the first thing I, as a, you know, a, a pastor who's successful is saying, how's the lighting? How's the sound? How's, <laughs> how's all these things, which are important. I mean, that they, they actually are. Um, <clears throat> but definitely how does this look so that we can sell this and attract people? Right. Mm-hmm. Which by the way, assumes a free will. <laughs> right. So that, that's a very Protestant thing to, to think about that way. And specifically, I should say maybe more of a Baptist, non-denominational thing to think about. And so they went the other direction. So dark candlelit, like <laughs> that kind of stuff. And it was kind of a flash in the, in, in the pan. Um, but I've had quite a few, uh, Protestant friends, the greater Protestant world, uh, pastors who have said, you know, we, we're discovering a sacramental type of way of looking at things. There, there's, there's something physical going on here. Um, now they don't mean the same thing as sacrament as a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran would, but, but they're onto something there or, but in the general sense, something holy, right? Yeah. Something sanctifying, tangible, authentic, literally coming in the presence of God. Right. I mean, this, this, something happens mm-hmm. here. Right. And I, and I, I see this in architecture and art all, all, all the time. Right. I mean, I think you even see it in our, the way we think about food. We want authentic food. We want uh, real food from the ground, you know, I, and I can, when I teach, teach this with our kids here at college and it's hard for them to understand, but I try to give them my viewpoint and, and, uh, from my generation growing up, there was two dominant generations. You had the greatest generation, which would have been our grandparents, you know, world war two, 19th came back, built these houses, 1950s, that kind of stuff. And we go the greatest generation, but you know, eh, a little racist and maybe not so good for the environment and, you know, <laughs> right. Um, and then our parents, and I don't just mean my parents cause this doesn't describe my parents, but these were, our teachers, the politicians, the people writing our books and writing sitcoms and stuff like that. Uh, radical 60s revolutionaries, right? And so you say, good for the civil rights movement, good for a lot of things, but terrible when it came to, you know, uh, a sexual ethic. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and you could kind of see through the, the, the facade there that they hate all these things of the previous generation and maybe even sometimes what America stands for, but are happy to consume what America has given them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Going back to this whole idea of authenticity, I think one of the things we see in generational changes and we see it here in in this, what you're talking about right now as well is 
the reaction against the previous generation. I think mm-hmm. that that's you know very very normal. It's very perennial. Natural. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, but then the reaction oftentimes takes this this claim of authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you're being inauthentic, mm-hmm. right? So you talk about like the sexual revolution. Well, you're suppressing, you know, a drive that is very naturally human. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna react against that, and we're yeah. going to say this is this is you know ludicrous. And then you look at you go forward to Gen X or mm-hmm. millennials. I don't know where that line mm-hmm. always crosses, but going from the the boomers to the uh, to the next generation and you've got this claim of inauthenticity once again right mm-hmm. although the the boomers probably you know thought they were the most authentic right. generation ever right right and it it's almost as if we are always trying to self-justify ourselves over against everybody else <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't i can't imagine that, we that, do that that. Maybe yet, you know and <laughs> and it's so frustrating to see you know we have we have young children specifically daughters um starting to speak that way Mm-hmm. about their their fathers you know yep. and um and how will they land who knows right who knows uh when it comes out so what i when i do i i, I teach them kind of this and i do we, we did a episode on on pitch from sorokin um and, and the different eras that that ebb and flow in 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 history and, and i teach them that too and i go okay here's our moment right now where i think you do want authenticity in 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 a good way, like like you you don't want that plastic world of the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't you don't look at a skyscraper and go, wow, that's the pinnacle, right? I mean, you want something that's more aesthetic, right? Um, and so the Mick Church, the big box church, is something that I think not everybody, but there there is there are some people that roll their eyes because they equate that with late capitalism mm-hmm. it, you're selling something i mean and and uh so you know growing up that was that was if you want to hold on to that old church architecture and art and liturgy and music and stuff like that you're just a, a bad conservative is just holding on to something that's that's terrible and doesn't work anymore and a lot of people that was a very good description, right? I mean, they were just holding on to it because they did that for the last 50 years or hundred years or whatever. Um, but, um, I think the reaction to that is this is something that's quite fake. And in today's climate, it couldn't be more, and you can take this for what it's worth. It couldn't be more white middle-class suburban into authentic, right-wing Republican, whatever. And so, and I think her point is to say that that kind of caricature of the mainline liberal churches, for lack of a better word, liberal, who just gave up any kind of, any, any kind of sense of that this is truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is truth being handed down to us, but perhaps kept some of those liturgical things, rejecting that, but then also rejecting a, the, the the church that has the lines blurred between the Republican Party and Sunday morning and and she mentions actually this it's a side note but uh, the American Solidarity Party and that's the second time that I have I've I've seen that the first time was um, in the last election when I couldn't vote for either of the two bigger parties and I found this American <laughs> Solidarity Party and read their website and like why not. So I am a voter of the American Solidarity. <laughs> Can't remember the guy's name, but it was a uh, kind of like 
pro-life, um, that kind of thing. But, but sort of pushing back against this idea that, um, the markets are going to solve all of our problems, right? So you can have a liberal, the government can solve all of all our problems as we progress, right? Mm-hmm. I think, think a very progressive, um, liberated, sexually liberated from the family, liberated from all of these, the, the moorings of the church and civilization. But you can also have this unlimited progress, modern way of thinking the markets are going to change everything or whatever and and kind of not really talk about social justice and so maybe there is a middle ground that says this authentic classic christianity has something to say about virtue it has something to say about justice but certainly understands that the gospel is what is going to motivate uh and and neither side is really talking about the gospel at all at all um and and just throwing throwing lobs at the other camp right i mean you can imagine somebody growing up even maybe even as old as we are but yet where sunday morning became really nothing different than their everyday existence you go and hear somebody say this is bad with our society good thing we're not like them whatever it is whether you're you're a you know um in the most liberal Episcopalian church or the most conservative Baptist church or whatever. And it's a turnoff. It's a turnoff. And there's no sense of holiness. There's no sense of community. There's no sense of something bigger than ourselves, that kind of thing. And I think the liturgy plays a role in that, or at least is something we can pinpoint and say, ah, I can, I can see I, that, 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 type of worship seems to connect with that worldview and that theology. Yeah. So she says um, kind of early in the article, she explains like the term weird Christians and says it's very loosely, you know, and partly in jest that they're, that they refer to themselves as that. But this is how she defines it. Then she says, we, what we have in common is that we see a return to old school forms of worship as a way of escaping from the crisis of modernity and the liberal capitalist faith and faith in individualism. So let me just highlight a couple sure. of things there. So the first thing is this crisis of modernity. I would love to hear what she what she means mm-hmm. by that because I, I mean I there are a thousand different ways to sure. talk about the crisis of modernity, but that I think is. You know, this is just a, a newspaper article. It's an opinion piece, so you're not going to unpack it like you would in an academic paper. But if I had, you know, an opportunity to to ask her five questions or whatever, mm-hmm. they would almost all revolve around this question. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean by this and what it is? And here's the reason why. I think there's there are plenty of crises in modernity. And, and I say that not in the sense of the pandemic that's going on, although that, yeah, sure, that mm-hmm. too. But rather structurally, logically, what whatever makes up, whatever defines modernity in our, as our way of thinking, as our whatever creates the zeitgeist, whatever creates our, our basic structure of viewing the world, there are problems there. And that's not to say, oh man, so modernity's got it all wrong. There's every, every intellectual generation, which are much longer than individual gener- or human generations, is, is going to have that. In fact, and we're caught up in that. So this individual generation thing, like millennials, and you're a part of something... <laughs> Much larger. That's like 500,000 years. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I think it's great that when we talk about this, you know, the, the, 
crisis of modernity. You can talk about modernity in the sense, in the, the literal sense, just now it's what's happening right now. So that's always a little confusing, but I always understand this to mean reaching back at least 500 years mm-hmm. um, to the to that movement that we call the modern movement um, or the movement of modernity. And uh, I'm guessing that that's what she's referring to as mm-hmm. well. And so this is something that's played out over, you know, generations and generations and generations. Um, and yet, that is a reaction to what comes before it. Mm-hmm. And what comes before it is a reaction to what comes before it. And it's not always a, a clear straight line, obviously. It's just like the generations, where does Gen X stop and start? And where do the millennials start and stop? Even like that, we just don't have that clear delineation. However, if we step back and we have, is it Petrov that you had talked about? Uh, Petrov Sorokin. Sorokin, yeah. Um, and then you had mentioned in that episode, if I remember correctly, Thomas Kuhn's um, structure of scientific revolutions is kind of like having that same structure as this idea that things are things change and there's that you can kind of identify how this happens but it's not like oh there's the moment there's the mm-hmm. moment um I've mentioned before that was one of my interests in graduate school in philosophy was the transition from ancient philosophy especially the greeks to um modernity and then to postmodernism where postmodernism is in, in large part i think pretending like they've discovered something new that had always been there and how it had been in fact kind of an underpinning of where modernity came from and so it's it's interesting to see to kind of like map all that out but the point is she says you know this is that you're escaping this crisis and i think there is a crisis to escape and so now we're talking about how we do that and there's this at least small group in this uh weird christians Mm -hmm. and i would say in our circles we might say the you know the the liturgical or sometimes high high church or smells and bells or whatever you know we might call it confessional like in the sense that confessional in the sense that we, we understand the doctrine of our confession. I'm not talking about Lutheran confessionalism. I'm talking about Lutheran English. I care about the confession of my church and I know it. And I understand that the, the liturgy, the architecture, the art, what we do is connected to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, and that we stand in that way that we stand inside of the church. And in that way, the church stands above us as something larger than us. And thank God it does. Mm-hmm. Because if it doesn't, if we have to be the driving force of the church, if we have to be that propeller, um, we're lost. And we're going to fall into certainly a crisis of mm-hmm. modernity. And I would say that's, that is definitely one of the crises that I see. Um, we think... There's no way for the church to really succeed unless we're doing something pretty amazing. And that might mean cutting edge. That might mean something, you know, whatever it is. But we're the ones that have to do it. And when we, when we go down that road, we're immediately going to be lost. I mean, we won't know that we're lost immediately, but we are lost immediately. Because we're stopping, we're, 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 we're ceasing going to God in the divine service and saying, what do you have for me I need whatever you can. Scraps from a table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're saying, "Hey, I've got a great idea. Mm-hmm. Great ideas are great, but when you go to when you go to to receive something from the divine, you know, Father, that the great ideas are going to pale in comparison every single time. And in fact, they're going to be worse than that. They're going to get in the way. And, and so, what they're getting, what what I see her getting at is like this is something that answers it because it's bigger than us. It reaches, it, it reaches across generations and across even, you know, denominations mm-hmm. in, in some ways and says, you know, here, I'm bringing something to you and it is super abundant. It is more than what you can, than what you need and more than what you can handle. And I think there's some, there's some theology connected with the uh, philosophical zeitgeist or whatever you want to say that, do I go to church to receive something from God? Is he actually 
can the divine actually come here and do something for me? In, mm-hmm. in modernity, it, it doesn't seem, you know, like that's actually possible. Less right? and less so, yeah. right? I mean, and, and in an evangelical world, that's not really their theology. God's up there, you know, and so worship the arrow goes from me to God rather than from God to me. Uh, and that's not very fulfilling when you for generation or generation have, if we do this, we will save society. If we do this, we will grow the church. If not, you know, our, our local congregation, if not the church. And if, if that becomes a flash in the pan, which it always will be, then there's something wrong with me. And then I have to change or die the, mm-hmm. you know, that, that phrase that we see here in business and in the church and, um, sort of missing the point a little bit. And so my frustration as a pastor is you did have people that were saying, we did it. We did page five in this hymnal for every Sunday for that's what we do here, but no clue why we do it. And so then you have people rightfully say, this ain't working. Let's do something different. I like what they do down the street without thinking about the theological, whatever, but it's, you're right. It's, it's individual, whether it be an individual congregation, an individual pastor, an individual person driving that rather than having the humility that says we're a part of something bigger. Is that what you're kind Mm -hmm. of getting after? Absolutely. No. And I think that the, I think the liturgy just becomes the, the flashpoint for that, that concept or that thought or that realization, whatever it is. Um, because it has existed in some form um, fairly consistently for so long. And so the church then, you can, you can see the identity of the church, um, that, that, that this is where the church you know, feeds its, its people. Um, another thing that she said. Well, let me, let me yeah, ask you a question first. So def- what would you say if I said there is a, there is a, a crisis of modernity, if you could give an overarching definition of what you think that would be. What, 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 how would you answer that question? Huh. I would, you know, a few years ago, I would have had a much, much quicker answer for this. Cause <laughs> this was something I thought a lot about when I was pretending like I was writing a dissertation. <laughs> um, How's that going by the way? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm enjoying my, uh, my new line of work. So, um, I, I guess I would, I would say, it's in some ways the exact same problem in the, on the meta level. It's the same problem that every intellectual generation has. And that is a hubris in your own system or your own process. And what I mean by that is that modernity, believe, modernity I think, um, really gets marked or in, re- in retrospect, at least, we mark it with the, with the birth of modern science. We even hear it right there, of course, modern science. But... Science, it's not like science didn't exist before that. Right. We just, we called it, you know, like, fi- like physical philosophy or physical science or something natural like science, that, right? Yeah. Natural science. Yeah. We called it something because we talked about looking at nature and coming out of that. And that was great. And it's got a, I mean, it had a wonderful, you know, a, even a, even a premier position in much of Western thought throughout the ages. However, when we get to modernity, there's a, there's a pretty big shift that occurs and it becomes the crown jewel. And now a lot of people will, will, put that up against theology and say, oh, so theology started taking a back seat. And that's not untrue, although I think it's missing a little bit of the point. It's that this idea of the natural world telling us stuff and informing us was always there. It was that now, not just theology, but all the other ways started taking a back seat and started receding. And so 
when we get to Nietzsche's Mad Men in the in the marketplace, what is it? About fifty minutes in, and I got well, to Nietzsche. Got, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we're actually you're you're all, we got four, we're at forty one. So okay, so forty one minutes we get a Nietzsche yeah, reference. Uh, make Wade proud here. <laughs> um, Nietzsche's Mad Men in the marketplace says, you know, he comes in middle of the day, noon, lantern, and he says, God is dead, and everyone laughs at him. Right. First of all, he's clearly crazy. He's in the middle of the day. Why do you have a lantern? And then he says, God is dead. And they all laugh at him because what are you talking about? The churches are still all over the place. Everyone still considers themselves Christians in Europe at that time. It's not like, what are you talking about? And of course, he walks away and he says, I've come too soon. And I, and I, the way I read that, the way I understand that is that Nietzsche was saying, hey, um, this is the natural progression. This is where we're headed. It's not, um, you know, we're, we're not too far from it. But saying it now makes you look like you're crazy and you're mad. Um, contemporary political example of this uh when the shift that happened in the united states with the view of gay marriage mm-hmm. right that happened so rapidly mm-hmm. that a few years before everyone just kind of accepted it we uh um we had laws being passed in state after state after state like banning it and i don't want to get into the politics of that i mean that mm-hmm. that's a whole nother thing but just how quickly that change happened and if you had told someone five years earlier, like, oh man, everyone's going to basically just say, this is done. I'm not going to worry about it. It's not a big deal anymore. They would have laughed at you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Nietzsche is getting at with that madman in the marketplace. So Mm -hmm. if I can reel myself back in here, theology is definitely part of it. God was dying in the modern sense. Of course, God wasn't dying in in any real sense, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, maybe where Nietzsche misunderstands what what God's doing um, and what his role is. Mm -hmm. Um, But modernity was killing God because it was it was crowding God out, but it wasn't just crowding God out. It was crowding a lot of things out. And you could say, I would argue like some of the logical foundation, the, that, that is, was part and parcel with a, with a true liberal education previously that we just don't even see in our schools anymore. I think that was all getting crowded out as well, which is odd when you think about science, because isn't that based on logic, but come on, go study a little logical positivism and you're going to say, well, is this really science? This mm-hmm. seems kind of crazy to me. You can't, can you, can you know anything with this? Mm-hmm. Science became very specific. It became very, very focused. And it took this, it took a crown jewel, not just against over and against theology, but in all of learning. And I think that that would be kind of where I would say, Hey, this is a huge change. Now my caveat in all of this, when I get on this soapbox, I always say, I like my iPhone. Actually, I don't have an iPhone, but I like my Android phone. Um, I like my computer. I like all these modern conveniences that I have. Science and the modern modern scientific thrust and movement that's happened over the last 500 or so years, it's been pretty amazing to us. And it, it is undeniable that it has made great, mm-hmm. created great accomplishments and strides for us. I mean, we are dealing with a pandemic right now, and we're not dealing with the plague, mm-hmm. right, in the way that they did in the Middle Ages. This is not, I mean, we're not, we have a different experience of this, and that has a lot to do with modern science. But all of those things come at, at a cost, mm-hmm. and that cost is a narrowed vision where we, see, we can focus on something really well, but that means everything in the periphery goes away, mm-hmm. or at least becomes blurred. And I think it becomes more and more blurred the more focused it is. And modernity is unique in this regard because it is designed on this sort of intense focusing. It becomes more and more and more and more focused. And so I would say that's the crisis of modernity. Eventually, if you focus so hard on one point, what happens, right? I mean, that point becomes nothing or mm-hmm. becomes everything or whatever. But that's the problem. And that's where I think postmodernity starts recognizing this and, and you know, kind of seeing the, the, the circle um, from the other side or however you want to say it. And if you're still focused change. on something and it doesn't, you wake up and you're still 
lonely, sad, bored, there's still evil in the world, then what? Well, and that's the truth. Focusing on it doesn't actually eliminate everything else. It just eliminates it from your perspective. But that's still there, and that is going to come rushing in at some point. It's going to, or it's going to poke its head in and just have, you know, crop up here and there. Eventually, it'll come rushing in. That's what I would say is the crisis. That's what yeah. I would love to talk to her about and say, yeah. what do you say this is? But so now let's go back to her. She's saying this is the, you know, maybe not the anecdote, but it, antidote, excuse me, but it's a, um, something, it's a, it's a balm that, that provides some relief. And that is the church and specifically the historical church and specifically the liturgical church and the liturgy. And I say for, um, for modernity, that is the, the balm that, that heals in a lot of ways because it goes beyond me. It's not me anymore. It's outside of me. It exists. It's so much larger than me, and it's not dependent on me. And all of a sudden, I can relax, and I can receive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I would say. And which is gospel, right, that I, I just receive. And I, I think there's there, there's a lesson here for the church, not just in its, its liturgy, but in its evangelism and all that kind of stuff, which is it's all goes together. You can't, you can't separate those uh, uh, very easily is that I think our, our message to, especially in America, to the, to the culture is ultimately one of law that states, this is what God says we're going to do this, whether, whatever it may be. How about your neighbor on one side or only have sex within marriage on the other side? <laughs> you, know <what laughs> I mean? you know, this kind of protestant work ethic you do it you're the individual you are responsible for yourself you follow these laws that kind of stuff or help out your neighbor that's the ultimate good or whatever but it ends up being more law and neither of those extremes which are very easily how can you not help but see that these are connected to political parties in america Mm -hmm. um just neither one is very attractive right now and maybe should have never been that attractive, at least to, at least to the church. And and I think another thing too is that that focusing and and you can see that we can even see that specialization in, in in, within science or within the medical field, right? Like your your doctor knows like one thing, and he only knows one thing, or <laughs> she only knows one thing if you really if you really push her or him, and, um and is unable to make connections. This is what we talk about all the time in liberal arts, right? And mm-hmm. To be able to make connections and see how things cross over, right? And uh, if, if what I think perhaps the greatest threat to Christianity in America as we hear over and over again, the church is dying, and then you have a, another study that says actually it's not, and you go back and forth, and I, I, I go the way that they're looking at that of course is all through statistics <laughs> right which is a very specialized yeah. very narrow thing to think about it and then this one thing is going to fix the problem um so so to that point but then also it becomes becomes very dumbed down it becomes a very simplistic message mm-hmm. usually about law but a very simplistic message so when if I'm if I'm a skeptical young person and I look at the church and and my view through the church is probably through social media my friends and my relatives that that uh, you know are Christian and so they put up the meme about whatever you know God is good all the time all the time God is good you know and and it's shallow it's shallow 
And I, I think probably the greatest threat to the church in America right now, besides being more law than gospel, that would always be the biggest threat. And it's the, it's the inevitable conclusion of whatever we screw up is that we are pretty simple. Our message has been pretty, and I don't mean simple in a good way that God died on the cross for you. And, and it is simple that way. I mean, there's not much going on there. There's, it's not very deep. And I think people our age and younger, they don't need that. They don't want that. And they're turned off by that. And they roll their eyes at that, um, that it's not very, it doesn't give the robust worldview that is the classic Christian worldview that has been uh, proclaimed and developed and has outbursts in art and in law and in all over places for 2000 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I, I understand the attraction to the past of Christianity for young people to say, there's gotta be something more to this most ancient institution than a prosperity gospel or a put the 10 commandments on the courthouse steps or whatever it's going to be, you know, this kind of simplistic sort of faith. I don't know if that, that resonates with you or not. Yeah, I think, I think definitely. And I think that the, um, the truth about humanity is that we need to hear the law, but we need to hear the law to see, you know, to, to, to see our reality. And that, is hard to do. What we like to do is put the law up in front of us so that we can feel pretty good about ourselves or so we can point it at someone else mm -hmm. and see, and see how terrible they are. And what the liturgy does and what the historical church does is it puts the law in front of you so that you can see just how, just how depraved you are, just how in need you are. And, and it's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be a political no. fix. There's not going to be. Yeah. <clears throat> no. And, and that it's, that's, and that that is not changing. And so you need something outside of yourself and outside of even this world to help you. Um, and not just help, but to really bring you along, drag you along. And in fact, one of the people that she interviewed in, in the, for this article says um, he was disillusioned with purely political solutions. So he says, he says, quote, we're not going to save ourselves, but God will. Yeah. Right. And, that's the, and that was what I wanted to get to. The other part that jumped out at me was the re, the, that statement, God will that God will save us. We're not going to save ourselves. We, this is the New York times, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing the statement by, by someone being interviewed saying, we're not going to save ourselves. And that's might seem kind of trite. And you know, of course that's, you know, we, okay, God will mm -hmm. save us. But think about the profundity there that someone is saying, we can't do this. We can't do what is most fundamental, our most fundamental need. But God will. And that is, in this context of this article, I mean, this is what she's saying. God brings something to us. He gives something to us through the church. And so when Jesus sets up the uh, New Testament church um, on Peter's confession and brings it, you know, and then that church takes its form throughout hundreds and hundreds of years, and then it kind of codifies in that liturgy that itself is still living and still changes, you know, um, but has lasted now for almost 2,000 years, this is a gift you know, an, an indirect gift from God in that God gives it and says, all right, people, you're going to go screw this up, but I'm going to guide it. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's something, there's something fundamental there. There is an answer to 
that modern crisis there. And there's an answer to the postmodern crisis. And there's an answer to the pre-modern crisis. And there's an answer to the medieval crisis. There's an answer to the ancient crisis. There's even answer in there for Moses and Abraham and for the Old Testament church. Um, because the answer is all the same. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the whole, like, so how essential is the liturgy question? Because mm-hmm. that's a whole other thing. And I don't mm-hmm. think either of us would say, like, this is the only way that it, mm-hmm. that it happens. But we're saying it does happen here. And there's something that might, we might, that, that might be comforting to us, certainly as to these weird Christians <laughs> and uh, to the liturgical you know, contingents out there that we know. Yeah, and I think um, there are some concerns uh, of this contemporary society um, uh, being, let's say, uh, equality is a big deal, um, obviously. Um, how do you deal with, with different ethnicities in this very small, increasingly smaller, tight global community, those kinds of things? There's, there's, we could tick off four or five things, and I could say this historic Christianity with its liturgy actually kind of gives a unique answer to all of those things. Uh, there is a community there. I, I tell my students all the time that, you know, just, just think about this, that, that you go to a Lutheran church in Wauwatosa, that the same prayer of the day is probably being uttered by Christians around the world, the same creed, perhaps they may be in the same readings. I mean, nothing is more universal in this culture than this. It's actually really quite striking and profound, right? Uh, the sense of all these things like, well, we're lonely now and we don't have this uh, sense of belonging. We don't have all these kinds of things. Well, the church, especially in the being the church's doctrine being portrayed in the, in the liturgy, brings you into this that's something so much bigger than you and then vocation outside which is your true worship right i mean there, there's an answer to all of these things and i don't think that the church in the last 50 60 maybe even uh, maybe 200 300 years even beyond that has really given that sense to people at in in the way that said this is what our mission is about people find it anyway like c.s lewis finds it anyway um, because it's it's there, partly due because the liturgy is still there, but the word of God is still there and people still read it and they still think about the history of the church. But I think growing up, you and I, what, what, what was the mission of the church besides preach the gospel? Grow? I mean, mm-hmm. all we heard mm-hmm. was grow, grow individually, grow the church, whatever. And and that's that modern progress. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that concept of growth. But what if I'm not growing? Well, there, but there is something wrong with that concept of growth, growth within the church and within the faith life, because the church can't measure success by growth, either by numbers or by your personal faith life. If, if it does, it's, it, it's mm-hmm. always wilting on the vine at that moment when it does. And we do it constantly. We constantly look at that. I mean, how many times do you go to, you know, a, a church that you've been going to for a while and you look at the bulletin and say, how many people were here last, mm-hmm. last Sunday? How much money was given yeah, last yeah. Sunday? All of these, these questions are always right there and present, but that is not the success of the church. Mm-hmm. And it can't be, it can't be when it becomes the focus the, the church begins dying, even if it's growing mm-hmm. rapidly and yeah, just, you know, yeah. fin- fanatically. I, I like, growth is always something you look back upon and say, oh, that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Uh, but boy, growth, 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 growth. That's all we heard, I think, 
you know, besides, besides the gospel, but sometimes not even the gospel. You just heard about this, this growth kind of thing in whatever way you wanted to to depict it. And it's never been portrayed like this is a really well-rounded, robust thing, (laughs) right? This is like, I mean, this talks about everything. This talks about the great questions of life. Think about the art. Think about the history. Think about the writings, the doctrines. It's good. It's bad. It's ugly. But it's something that's that's profound. And and I don't think that we we were rightly proud of it, if I can say Mm -hmm. that the right way, that we do have something to offer the world other than, um, you know, our political stance or this is going to make your life better right now or... God is great, or how's your prayer life? <laughs> you know, all those kinds of things that are periphery, maybe, um, became the things that was going to radically change the 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 decline of the church and was going to fix it. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, how many times I get even real smart people will say this is a little bit different, but you know, if we just had prayer in school that would solve all of our problems. No, no, no. I'm sorry, but no. Right. I know plenty of Christian schools that have prayer every day and they right. have all kinds of problems. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. Um, I'll give you, I want to read this. I read this to you before. I want to read this uh, before we, before we get done, but anything else in the article or anything that you wanted to add before our time is up? Yeah. Just, I mean, I started off by saying I've been thinking about this because of, uh, of our church putting services online and thinking of different churches and, you know, I've shared it with my family and it's, uh, they've, you know, watched it. It's been interesting and just kind of thinking about the audience out there. And I would say, especially those who are, who might be out there listening right now during 2020 and still in quarantine or whatever we're, we're in here. Um, Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're feeling alone, lonely, sad, miserable, lacking that kind of that kind of com- faith compass or that, that oh, faith center. A hope in next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's plenty of, re- there, there are tons of resources out there online, but also reach out to your pastors because pastors are, um, you know, th- uh, the ones that I've talked to are doing um, just amazing work and working really hard to try and be available to their parishioners. And these are the moments where um, have a different relationship with your pastor. He's not just there on Sunday mornings um, uh, or your priest and, uh, you know, receive those those comforts that uh, that he has to offer um, specifically um, you know if possible receive the sacrament receive that you know that physical grace that uh, that God gives us and um, and if not if you're in a situation where that's not possible you know listen and and, and pray and ask for prayers and, and do that because there's a broader crisis of modernity that we've been talking about we have a particular crisis that we're dealing with right now and um, there's a, there's still a, a great comfort that the that the church has to offer, and uh, that the comfort always goes to individuals. It's not corporate. It's it's uh, it's for you. And so when we're asking ourselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to save ourselves? Just remember that God will. <laughs> so sorry, that's my no. That's very good. Um, so when I got this morning. And uh, we go to late church now because <laughs> we can do it whenever we want. Um, so I got went through, you know, like the typical uh, sites that I news sites that I look at probably just every morning and just look at the mostly the headlines. And if something grabs me, I'll read it or whatever. And this was online. This was in the top right corner on the opinion one. So it wasn't like the headline on the front page of the New York Times, but it was literally on the front page of it, which was striking to me. And I read it and go, yeah, that, that, you know, that's very interesting. And I thought, 
I've heard this for the last 20 years over and over mm-hmm. again, not just in, in the liturgy. And I've been saying it, we've been saying it, right? Like that there's something going on here and young people are, are, are attracted to it. Even in the evangelical world, they're waking up to that. I, I love this offhanded quote by uh, Rick Warren, right? Mega church superstar who said, I don't know, but more people come to Christ when we have the sacrament four times a year, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, and they don't have the sacrament like the Lutherans and Catholics do, but there's, there, there's something going on there, right? And uh, I, I do remember this long quote, and I'm going to read it, and it's very long, and I apologize, but a long quote from Thomas Oden, who was a Methodist, probably would describe himself, I know he would, as a liberal Christian, and then kind of fell back to classical Christianity. That's how he would describe it and became uh, the major editor for the ancient Christian commentary. And he passed away a few years ago, but he wrote this in the in the nineties, I believe, and uh, it 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 was the it was one of those books. Um, uh, what I think it's uh, I can't remember the title now. Like whatever happened to modernity or something like that. Uh, no, a requiem, a lament in three movements um, about modernity, and it stuck with me so much that uh, I've had like three or four essays or presentations that I've had to to give. And I, I end it with this. <laughs> and so it is long, but I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, this is Thomas Oden writing at the beginning of his book, Requiem. To all sufferers from decadent modernity, I bring greetings on behalf of the young classicist of the post-liberal underground that abides patiently in the crevices of our heartsick modern culture. And so this weird Christianity probably maybe would have fit into this 20 years, 30 years later. They bear good news to harass Christian believers who may be tempted to despair over the momentum of these times. My purpose in writing this is to provide reasons why despair is not the appropriate response to these times. I shall describe the impassioned values of an emerging group of young Orthodox cultural renovators who, having understood the values and methods of modern inquiry and been disillusioned by their consequences, are now turning in earnest to classical Christianity. They are young in spirit because they are not intimidated by modernity. I like to call them young fogies to distinguish them as postmodern pace setters from the old fogies who remain bogged down in the quagmire of liberal Protestant pietism. They understand that the surest form of cultural renovation begins one by one with personal religious conversion, the turning of the heart away from arrogance and folly and toward faith in God. They are the newest work of the Holy Spirit. My own generation of liberated theologians consisted mostly of novelty-fixated 60s revolutionaries. We applied our radical chic imagination to everything that seemed to us slightly old or dated. The emerging young classicists are critics of my generation's modern chauvinism, which assumes that newer is better, older is worse. As I emphasize with and speak for and about this spirited, emergent generation of young classic Christian men and women, I find myself ironically entering into a kind of resistance movement in relation to my own generation of relativists who have botched things up pretty absolutely. I'll explain how I made this circuitous transit from being a 60s radical to a young-at-heart fogey, happy to be thrown by providence into this singular, wonderful, historical moment. That really took me many years ago. I don't know when I read it, probably 15, 16 years ago, and I never forgot it. And I think it does describe um, what is going on. And, and in my own little world here, and I think, Peter, you would agree in, in your own little context right here, you say, 
in general, he is kind of talking about me mm-hmm. a little bit here. So I'll give you the last word. No, I would just say, you know, as we uh, deal with the crisis of modernity or we deal with the uh, crisis of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, whatever it is, remember that the church has something to offer you that is the bomb that is going to make sure everything's going to be all right. Uh, oh, I shouldn't do that. That's a different podcast. Then. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> um, but uh, remember that what God gives us in the church and what the church brings us continuously throughout all these years continues to and she will continue to freeze us so that we can let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink I set them up, another round I set them up Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.